Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the St. Oswald's Haberfield Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. In the communities that we find ourselves, where we live, where we work, where we play, On top of that, the National Church Life Survey results came out uh, just a little while ago, just before the census data, about a month ago or so, and um, we got those for St. Oswald. Some of you will remember filling that in a few months back at church, and there's some really encouraging insights for us at St. Oswald's, and hopefully we'll get a chance to share some more about that over the coming weeks with you. But take a look with me at the top three priorities, things that you said that you thought it would be good for us to focus on over the coming 12 months. You'll see here on the screen, number one, the number one priority was to keep building a sense of community. Uh, I've got something more to share with you about that later in today's service, so hold tight for that one. Number two, encouraging people to share their faith and invite others. Actually, I've got something to share with you about that next week. And here's number three, supporting social action and aid. As we gathered our collective voices and we thought about where we're at as a church and what it would look like for us to keep pressing forward into God and into our community, we said that these are things that we see as things that we'd like to focus on as a community over the next 12 months. And that third one there is... Uh, what we're going to speak about this morning, because we're a community that wants to do more. We have a sense that the gospel calls us to more. As a church, we know that we're not just meant to exist for ourselves. The church is not a club or a society. We exist so that others might experience the love and grace of God, both through the message that we share, the second of those three priorities, and through the way that we love the third. And so this morning, we're looking at arguably the most famous story Jesus ever told, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I've got three points that's going to help just to make sense of it or break it up as we move through. We're going to look first at the mandate to love our neighbours. Secondly, we're going to look at the motivation to love our neighbours. And thirdly, we're going to look at the method for loving our neighbours. So number one, the mandate of neighbor love. Uh, Luke chapter 10, which you might like to have open in front of you, is uh, the beginning of a section of uh, what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. That section begins in chapter 9, verse 51, and carries on really until about the end of chapter 19 of Luke's gospel. And Luke's just sent out the 72 disciples who've gone to the villages and the towns with the message of the kingdom of God. And they've returned with joy because, well, even the demons have submitted to them in the name of Jesus, showing his power and authority. And then chapter 10, verse 25, this lawyer stands up to test Jesus. And what that means, just as we think about how this story fits into what's going on in Luke's gospel, Luke's presentation of Jesus' life, is that Jesus is showing us something more about what it means to be a disciple. 
He's showing that his disciples are called to love their neighbors. Look at verse 25. Just then, a teacher of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. This lawyer isn't a modern day professional engaging in civil law. No, he's an expert in religious law, in the Mosaic law. He's come asking questions about what it means for a person to inherit eternal life, what you must do. But he's not really there with a genuine curiosity. He's come to trap Jesus. Because Jesus is always making friends with people who seem to disobey the law. With people who are sinners and tax collectors and the unclean. And that put the religious teachers offside because Jesus seemed to be disregarding the law. But Jesus knows this lawyer's heart. And so he says, and he knows the heart of the law. He says, what is written in the law? What do you read there? The lawyer discerns correctly that Jesus doesn't want him to recite the entire Torah, but just to give a summary of it. And so he gives the summary of two commands. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus agrees with him. So far, so good. You've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But this lawyer, he wants to know what the limits of love are. Where love is demanded and where it stops. He wants to know what the basic bare minimum is where he can successfully fulfill this command. And Jesus tells a story that blows the doors off his neighbor love paradigm. And this innocent man is traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he's set upon by robbers who beat him, strip him of his clothes, and leave him half dead on the side of the road, bloodied, bruised, and quite possibly unable to speak. They're likely returning from their service in the temple. Oh, sorry, missed the line there. Two of Israel's religious leaders, a priest and a Levite, they happen to pass by, and they're likely returning from their service in the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, Jericho was, outside of Jerusalem, the most populous town for priests in Jesus' day. And both of these men were involved in the temple worship. The priests offered sacrifices. They served God directly. They oversaw the running of the temple. The Levites, they did the running of the temple. They assisted with worship in the temple. And they served God by serving the priests. Both of these men see the man on the side of the road, but they deliberately steer clear. The priest, he's got a kind of tenuous excuse. If the man was dead and he looks pretty in trouble, then the priest risks defiling himself by coming into contact with a corpse, meaning that he couldn't have served in the temple for the next seven days. He would have been ritually defiled. And one of the questions that 
Jesus is testing out by telling this story is which law takes priority in the case of two conflicting laws. The law not to defile oneself or the law to love one's neighbour. What really is the heart? What really is central to what God demands of his people? And Jesus shows the answer with a twist that none of his listeners would see coming. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, while travelling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. The Samaritans were despised in Israel. You may know that already. They were the northerners who had allegedly interbred with the Assyrians when Assyria conquered northern Israel back in 722 B.C., They'd established a temple on Mount Gerizim, a rival mountain to Jerusalem, which they claimed was the true temple to Yahweh, or to God. The animosity between these two people groups, Samaritans and Jews, was not unlike the hatred between Israelis and Palestinians today. And to put it simply, this despised Samaritan is from another nation and another religion. That's how the Jews would have seen it. But he sees. He stops. He stoops. And he cares for the man and carries him to a makeshift hospital. He meets his needs with holistic neighbor love. What Jesus says is that to love your neighbor is to meet the concrete needs of the people around you, whether they believe what you believe or not. And that ought to challenge us. Because so often we try to put limits on neighbor love, don't we? We we try to limit who we love. We want to love people who are like us, people from the same background as us, who talk like us or live like us or think like us. But there's only two kinds of characters in the story, Jews and Samaritans, and that shows us that we can't limit who we're willing to be a neighbor to by cultural or economic or social affinity. Anne Lamott says, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. And what Jesus is saying is that there's no such thing as a non-neighbor. We also try to limit when we love. Who we love, when we love. Sometimes we meet people in need, people who in comparison to us are poor, underprivileged or disfavored, but we think... Well, they're not starving. But the commandment that Jesus was illustrating with this parable was the command to love your neighbor as yourself. An 18th century preacher, Jonathan Edwards, argued that we don't wait until we are in extremity before we do something about our own condition. 
And so why should we wait until our neighbour is literally starving before we do something about theirs? A third thing we sometimes try and limit neighbour love is in the how much. We reason that we don't have enough to spare or that our generosity will probably be wasted if we give too much. But look at how the Samaritan loves. Two denarii, which he gives to the innkeeper, was a couple of days of wages, plus the costs of bandaging, pouring oil and wine, going out of his way to get him to an inn and offering to meet whatever other expenses the innkeeper incurred. It's a lavish description because it's meant to show us that neighbour love is costly, We are to help when it costs us. That's precisely what it's meant to look like. And if you can say, well, I can help and I don't feel the cost, then probably you're not helping enough. As disciples of Jesus, we're called to act with compassion towards anyone in need. And that raises the question, how do you get anyone to live like this? How do you do it? The motivation for neighbor love, our second point. See, what Jesus says to his disciples is incredibly demanding. To meet the needs of people around you, to be generous in the way that you do so. And if that sounds normal to our culture's ears, it's only because Christianity has gotten so far under our skin that we've stopped noticing it. In the Roman world of the first century, when Jesus was speaking this parable, this kind of love was unheard of outside of the God of Israel. The Roman gods didn't love the world. And love wasn't a virtue that characterized the Roman vision of life. Our modern Western imagination places such a high value on compassion because of the impact of Christianity on it over the last 2,000 years, as historians such as Tom Holland, who's not a Christian himself, have shown decisively, the only way to account for our modern assumptions is because of the impact of the Jesus movement on them. Or to take a quote from another author, Glenn Scrivener, who's written a new book, The Air We Breathe, really excellent little book if you want to understand just how much Our modern world, the air that we breathe, our assumptions are shaped by Christianity. He writes this, he says, from the 5th century, so we skipped a few centuries, he's got a paragraph about that too, but I'm just taking the next one. There was, to use medievalist James William Brodman's phrase, oh yeah, here it is, a cascade of hospitals. In the Middle Ages, just the monastic order of the Benedictines alone were responsible for more than 2,000 hospitals in Western Europe. These movements were thoroughly and particularly Christian. Today, if you need first aid, look for a white cross on a green background, the internationally recognized sign. If you're in a crisis, it's the Red Cross which millions turn to. A charity whose strapline sounds suspiciously like a summary of Jesus' famous parable, refusing to ignore people in crisis. The good Samaritan lives, Scrivener says. In fact, nowadays, the good Samaritan is assumed. But where did Christianity get 
this kind of sacrificial love ethic towards the needy. It comes through the teaching, through Jesus' parables, yes, but not only that, and even not mostly that, I don't think. It came from his very life and mission. Jesus was love incarnate. And what made the parable of the Good Samaritan so arresting for Jesus' listeners was the unexpected identity of this third traveler. Those gathered around them would have expected the story to go this way. A priest, a Levite, and an Israelite. Walk into a bar. No, not quite. But a priest, a Levite, and an Israelite. Because these were the three divisions that Israel was typically divided into. And had Jesus told the parable with a Jew, the lawyer would have found himself in the third helper. He would have seen himself there, offering assistance to the fellow kinsmen in need. But by making the man a Samaritan, Jesus flipped the script. Because the lawyer and the listeners, they could never have seen themselves naturally in this Samaritan neighbor. You kind of see it at the end, actually. Jesus asked, which of the three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the man can't even bring himself to call him a Samaritan. He simply says, the one who showed him mercy. And what that means is that there's only one character left with whom to identify if you're the lawyer listening to Jesus tell a parable, or if you're the audience who's gathered around, it's the half-dead person on the side of the road. And so the question for the lawyer and the question for all of us is, what if your only hope was an act of free grace from someone who in no way owed it to you? Would you want grace? Would you want to be loved? Would you want to be neighbored by someone like that? See, Jesus says that the Samaritan was moved with pity, which is the Greek word for compassion. And do you know what? More than any other word in the Gospels, the word used to describe Jesus' own emotional state is the word compassion. See, it's Jesus who is the even greater Samaritan who comes to our aid when we are broken and bloodied and bruised, who sees, who stops who stoops to our need. The sacrificial love of Jesus is the great motivator. It's the foundation for loving your neighbor. It's because sacrificial love incarnate turned up that a revolution of sacrificial love began. Any other motivation will ultimately prove insufficient. Secular morality, it says, you should do good to the poor because you're an enlightened person. Because you're a good person. 
because you know it's good for society and for you. You have so much, so you should give it away. But Christianity says, because you have experienced costly neighbor love, now you can love your neighbor too. See, loving our neighbors flows out of loving God, of loving God in response to the grace that he has poured out on us. That's the motivation. That's the driving power. And Jesus says to each of us, go and do likewise. And so if that's the mandate and the motivation, then what is the method of neighbor love? I want to give us just one insight that I think might be helpful for us as we try and take a step in that direction, each one of us. As we reflect on what it means to go and do likewise. And it's this. If we're going to love our neighbor, we need to get proximate to our neighbor. Did you notice that the priest and the Levites stay distant? They see the man and then they pass by and Luke gives us this detail on the other side. But the Samaritan, we're told, came near him. He was moved with compassion. He went to him. In other words, he got close to, he got proximate to his neighbor. Brian Stevenson is an American civil rights lawyer. You'll see a picture of him here who has championed the rights of people of color in the United States who've been unfairly punished under the criminal justice system. He's the founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative. You may know his book, Just Mercy, or seen the film adaptation of his story on Amazon Prime. And in 2018, he was the keynote speaker at a Fortune magazine CEO initiative, where he spoke on the power of proximity. He said this, I believe that to make a difference in creating a healthy community, a healthier society, We've got to find ways to get proximate to the poor and the vulnerable. I absolutely believe that when we isolate ourselves, when we allow ourselves to be shielded and disconnected to those who are vulnerable and disfavored, we sustain and contribute to these problems. I am persuaded that in proximity there is something we can learn about how we can change the world, how we can change the environment, how we can create healthier communities. I'm actually persuaded that there's power in proximity. And that too often we wait until we think we have all the answers before we get closer to those who have been marginalized. I'm actually persuaded that we have to find ways to get closer to the disfavored, the marginalized, the poor, the disabled, even if we don't have any answers about what we're going to do when we get there. The power is in proximity. I was reminded of this quote by Jacob last week because I was mentioning to him that we're going to be doing a second week on justice and mercy this week and he said I oh, should check this talk out because he's got such great insights on proximity and I've been reflecting on it and being challenged by it all week because the truth is one of the hardest things about loving people in need in a place like the inner west and especially in a place like Haberfield is that it's often hard to spot need. This suburb is 
the garden suburb after all. It was created with the idea that you could get out of the city slums, out of the mess and the poverty and the industry into a place that was safe and secure. It's easy to remain distant from it, to not notice it, to pass by on the other side. It's not that there's no need there, it's just that we're not coming into contact with it. It may not only be poverty or financial need, it might be loneliness or disability or broken families single parents, domestic and family violence. You might be international students or new migrants or temporary workers. And until we've rubbed shoulders with it, it's very easy to walk on by and assume that we're doing our bit to love our neighbour or at least that if our neighbour presented themselves, we'd be glad to help them. But Jesus invites us to draw near to those in need. One translation of John chapter 1, verse 14, puts it this way, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighbourhood. He got proximate. And so... The challenge this morning, the invitation is to reflect on ways that you might be able to get more proximate, to rub shoulders with need, to scratch beneath the surface and figure out where those bits of brokenness and pain are. Maybe that looks like something fairly simple, like volunteering at the mobile community pantry that operates out of St Albans over in Five Dock every second Wednesday with Anglicare. Or maybe it means something like volunteering with the IELTS Corner that has been run by Mathetes, our Korean community, helping those who are studying for their English visa exams to be able to, permanent residence exams, to be able to pass those exams. Maybe it looks like sharing stories where it's appropriate in your gospel community of the way that you're already involved in the lives of others. Again, in the NCLS data, 48% of us said that we'd lent money to someone in need outside our own families in the last 12 months. 38% of us said that we'd helped someone through a personal crisis that wasn't sickness. I'd love to find ways for our church, not just as individuals, but as a community, to be more active in doing this, in meeting the needs of the marginalised and the needy in our community, or if we need to, even to get a little bit further away from our community to find where that could be. And if that resonates with you, then come talk to me. let's, Let's help figure out a plan together to move this forward to work out what it might look like for us to follow this vision, this picture that Jesus gives of loving our neighbours because we've been loved by the great neighbour, the Lord Jesus himself. Let's pray. Father, we 
Thank you for the fact that you didn't leave us broken and bloodied and bruised on the side of the road, but you came to us. You met us in the Lord Jesus Christ. You rescued us. And you poured out your love. And so, as those who've experienced that love, may we be the kind of people who share that love with others. And wherever we're up to in that, help us to take steps forward so that we might demonstrate in the way that we live the great love with which you've loved us and with which we want to share with others. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.